0: Uh, what you do in moving our hearts to serve you and to go, Lord, when you command us to go. We pray, Father, your blessing upon Joe and uh, and the others, Lord, for Danny and Joel and and Lori and Duty, and ask, Lord, your blessing upon them as they as they prepare between now and tomorrow morning, leaving very, very early to uh, to uh, Veracruz, we ask, Lord, that you make all their preparation smooth. May you make their trip into Juarez to the airport uh, safe and, uh, Lord, their f- flight from here to there, Lord God. Uh, uh, just a, a time, Lord God, of, of rest and preparation. and And we ask, Lord God, that you bless Fred and Barbara in in what they're planning and what they're preparing. Lord, may it be because you have uh, put upon their hearts the things that need to be done and the areas that need to be uh, uh, touched upon. I ask, Lord God, that you open many doors and that you bring many people, Lord God, to saving grace. We are thankful indeed, Lord, uh, for those who heed your call. But you've called us all, so wherever we go, whatever we do, even here, may we continue to be, Lord, your servants, be light in dark dark places, and may your strength, Lord God, abide in us. We ask your blessing upon our college and career, in our in our high school and youth, Lord God, today as they are spending time in worship and communion with you. May you bless the teachers and all those, Lord God, who. have led those who have gone up there to to retreat to a greater spiritual understanding and a greater spiritual walk with you help them lord god when they get back for they will face the storms and the trials of this life as we all do we ask father god that you grant them wisdom and grace in dealing with everything lord god but let their experience with you today be a joyous one and today as we come to your word here in this place Father, we ask that you would, out, would just pour out your spirit, that you would bless and anoint and and just pour your spirit out upon us, Lord God. And Grant us, O oh Lord, your wisdom and grace. Stir our hearts, Father, to understand how your word, even in Genesis chapter 8, can be so uh, spiritually uh, motivating and, and encouraging. And, and certainly, Lord God, uh, moving to us, Lord, in the days and times in which we live. And so I pray, Father, your blessing today in our time with you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 8. I've entitled this uh, message, Remembering Noah in Two Floods. And I hope to explain that as we go. We thought there was only one flood. But as we'll find out, there really are two floods One flood that we have to deal with, even today. Let me read to you verses one through three. I hope you have your Bible, so please follow along. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. As we begin this new chapter in our study of the book of Genesis, I want to present this whole passage over the next couple of weeks from the general to the specific. So today, it's going to just be a very general overview of this chapter from beginning to end. But I want to deal with more of the spiritual issues before moving on to some of the more technical or scientific matters, as it were. Nevertheless, we may still touch upon some of those specifics. Now, the Apostle Peter wrote two New Testament letters to encourage the church throughout the ages to persevere in their walk with Jesus while patiently waiting for him to return from heaven. In his two letters, we read that he makes reference to the time of the catastrophic flood. He makes reference a couple of times to the catastrophic flood. First of all, 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's turn there. Let's read this together. Verse 18 says for Christ also has once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by his spirit in other words made alive by by the spirit by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. But like figure, whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the flesh or the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. In other words, the water isn't what cleanses you, but it is, uh, in other words, the waters of baptism are not what cleanse you, but it is a symbol of that. But he says it's the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of jesus christ so there's the first mention by peter of noah and the time of the flood but then in second peter chapter two which i'd like for you to turn there now in verses four and five he mentions it once again in verse four he says for if god spared not the angels that sin but cast them down to hell this of course being the angels that we talked about in, in genesis chapter six if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So there's the second mention of Noah and the time of the flood or the catastrophic flood. But if you'll go to the next chapter, Second Peter 3, verses 5 through 7. There is one more mention. He says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what what he says now in that last statement is, Yes, there was a flood, that God used to judge the whole world. But he will not use that method to judge the world again. But there is a coming judgment, and that judgment is going to be reserved for fire. So there is another judgment, but it won't be done the same way. Well, we should all know this. We might be surprised to read that Peter mentions not just a catastrophic flood but a contemporary flood. He also mentions a contemporary flood. Not just contemporary to, to him and to those that he was writing in the first century, but to all of his listeners in every generation, even until now, there is a flood, a contemporary flood. And I'd like to point that out to you. If you will, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Once again... In First Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked. Now, what he's saying here very simply is, there was a time when we walked in the ways of the Gentiles, in the way of the world. <clears throat> and so he mentions certain issues and certain characteristics of it. We walked in lasciviousness, which means we walked in lewdness. We walked in lusts. We walked in excess of wine, which is drunkenness. We walked in revelings, uh, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange. In other words, the world thinks it's strange now that we've come to Christ, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Now keep that phrase in mind. It's underlined up here for you. The same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. So now that you're not running with them, and I hope you're not running with them, by the way, but if, if you're not running with them, they speak evil of you because you're no longer the way they are, because you're no longer the way you are. See? But it's interesting that in the New King James and in a few other modern translations, verse 4 says something different than excess of riot. It says, <clears throat> in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Interesting that he would use that word <clears throat> because literally that's what it is, a flood of dissipation. The word excess of riot, or the phrase excess of riot, in the, in the King James can really be translated the excess of excess. Two different words. But when you consider a flood, isn't that an excess of water? So there is a flood of dissipation. There's another term that we need to deal with. So Peter's readers, which include you and me, by the way, because we've just read this, They live then, and we live today, in what he calls an excess of riot or a flood of dissipation. A flood of dissipation. Those characteristics, the lasciviousness, the lewdness. You know, we live in a very lewd society. When we talk about things that are sexual or sensual, I mean, it's all around us. So that's for you to understand what lasciviousness is. Lasciviousness, lewdness, lusts drunkenness revelries drinking parties literally that's what paul is saying is happening or i should say peter is saying is happening all around us every day and abominable idolatries that characterize the world of the unsaved and let me stress this is the world of the unsaved it is not the world of this of the church it is not the world of the believer any longer you may have been in that, but you should not be in that anymore. So you're understanding the picture here. See? Si? No? See. Si. Okay. So these things characterize the world of the unsaved, are metaphorically described as a flood. The flood of dissipation. The world the word for flood or excess that Peter uses gives the picture of a liquid being poured out in an ever-widening expanse. It can start in a stream, but you speak, you begin to fill up that stream more and more, and the stream becomes a river, and the river cannot be contained by, by the levees, and it just runs more and more and more, and it just continues to grow until it floods everything in its sight. So he's describing that. Uh, worldly living. That's what he's talking about. Worldly living as an ever-widening stream which soon becomes a flood of immoral and wild and selfish, idolatrous activities into which the unsaved are plunging themselves. The unsaved are plunging themselves into these things. May it not be that any believer in Jesus Christ is plunging himself in the same things. Dissipation itself means excess, as I said. And it came to mean of one who is destroying himself by willful and deliberate fleshly excesses. Willful and deliberate fleshly excesses. You see, the world around us is a flood of dissipation. It is a rising, a spreading, ever widening excess of fleshly immorality. Its currents seek to draw us in and entrap us in a deadly undertow. And folks, let me say, that flood of dissipation is around us today. I want you to think of something. Back in the 50s and 60s, the early days of television, there were, there were a lot of things that were not allowed on TV. There were words that you could not say. There were things that you could not do. There were even things that you could not even imply. So they were trying to keep television safe for families and the public. Can we say that that's happening today? Not one bit. Now with cable and Dish Network and direct TV and all kinds of other means we, where we can have 250 uh, channels coming into our houses, half of those channels, e- even our local stations. I can't believe some of the things that local stations are accepting now or wanting to accept into uh, the, you know, they call it prime time. I don't care what you, what you think. You know, kids are going to watch TV no matter what time. That's our society today, a fleshly indulgence, fleshly, immoral indulgence, immorality all around us. That's the flood of dissipation in which we are in the midst of today. Now, the Apostle Peter was as and is a sensitive and caring pastor. And after mentioning the Genesis flood in 1 Peter 3, he realizes that the people that he's writing to are in a flood themselves, the flood of dissipation, the flood of excess. Now, going back to Noah, Noah and his family were saved in the ark during the Genesis flood as the water dissipated. And Peter wanted to be certain that the family of believers that he was writing to was saved in Jesus Christ, were saved during that flood of dissipation. And as the flood dissipates in our text, here in Genesis 8, we will find our encouragement to persevere during the current flood of dissipation that is surrounding us We are encouraged three ways. Let me give these to you quickly, and then you'll see them up here if you're taking notes. And I hope you are. In the present flood of dissipation, the Spirit will restrain us. In the present flood of dissipation, the Scriptures will reassure us. And in the present flood of dissipation, steadfast worship will restore us. And so let's look at the first point here. In the present flood of dissipation, the Spirit of God will restrain us. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of our text once again. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. These opening verses set before us the power of God the Holy Spirit during the flood. We are told in the first verse that the Lord made the wind to pass over the earth and that the water subsided. (laughs) So going back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, we saw that this wind was God the Holy Spirit. The power to restrain and the power to gather together. Verse 2 of Genesis 1 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was was now preparing to make sure that everything was going to be restrained and then brought together. As we see in verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And the implication is that God, the spirit of God, was moving out, working out all of these things in creation. So it is in God's power that the water is restrained. It is in his power that Noah is restrained during the flood. Now you say, why would Noah need to be restrained in the flood? Well, he had to wait patiently while completely surrounded by water. You have to wait a long time. What could he do? He had to wait upon God. And there were a lot of days that he had to wait. A person can get awfully impatient when all you hear are a bunch of animals snoring. It might not smell very good in there. You really want to open the window, but God doesn't want you to do it yet. There's a lot of things you might think you might want to do, but you know you have to wait. You just had to wait upon the Lord. So Noah needed to be restrained. But it's also in God's power that we find restraint from the flood of dissipation today. Because we need to wait patiently, though surrounded by the water of this flood. And we are indeed surrounded by those waters. And as the energizing power of God, the Holy Spirit passed over the earth. A new world was being set in order, wasn't it? The vapor canopy that surrounded the earth was gone now. A new system of winds and waves and evaporation had now begun. Changes to the earth's geography occurred. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. We're going to give just a little bit of the creation science view here, but we'll notice verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 104 says, the psalmist says, Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Speaking, of course, here of the flood. The flood. At thy rebuke they fled. The waters began to abate. At thy voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. The waters began to recede. The waters began to find their place. Eventually, the whole of the earth was different than it was before the flood. Now there are hills and mountains. Now there are valleys. Now there are deep seas. There are rivers and lakes on land. Totally different. Things have changed over the time of the waters receding. Dr. Henry Morris, in his definitive work, The Genesis Record, believes this was the trigger for what we call the Ice Age. He writes, the sharp changes in temperature following the flood, occasioned by the precipitation of the vapor canopy that had maintained the greenhouse effect over the world, led to the buildup of great thicknesses of snow and ice near the polar regions, of course, north and south poles. These eventually radiated out in the form of tremendous ice sheets covering northern Europe and reaching down into the northern third, of the United States in this hemisphere. The Ice Age probably lasted several hundred years or a thousand years and undoubtedly had a profound effect on the Earth's animal kinds. So he's really touching on a lot of different things here, but nonetheless, uh, he, he's pointing out that the Ice Age, which some people think was like 20 30,000 years ago, really was a lot closer than that to our time, possibly between 6 to 8,000 years. But all of this begs a question. It begs the question, was there really a global flood? Now, I'm not going to deal with that particular question today, but I still need to ask the question, was there really a global flood? Because most evolutionists will tell you, well, there wasn't really a great, big, long, you know, what do you call it, a global flood that covered the whole earth. There really couldn't have been that. But there were a whole lot of local floods. Well, folks... Put all the local floods together and guess what you have? You have a global flood. And every civilization that could write about it and could remember it through whatever oral traditions were passed on mentioned a flood that covered the earth. And if God's word said that it was a global flood, then it was a global flood. And there's proof to that, and we'll see that next time. Next week, we're going to look at a couple of things. Uh, Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. You know know what it looks like, big hole in the ground. Some of you have heard of what happened a few years ago at Mount St. Helens. These are issues to teach us that things happen a lot more rapidly than evolutionists want you to believe they do. But let's hear Dr. Morris, one more time, because he says such a flood would have destroyed every physiographic feature on or near the Earth's surface, redepositing the eroded materials all over the world in stratified sedimentary rocks of the Earth's crust. Not only do such sedimentary rocks abound all over the world, but they give much evidence of having been formed by rapid and continuous deposits. Most formations can be shown to have been formed within a few minutes' time. So it wasn't billions of years. It was just a few minutes of time that the things that we see today in some sense of a, a beauty. I mean, the Grand Canyon is a beautiful place to see. But all of that done, not over millions of years or even billions of years, but a very short period of time. Well, that's something just to kind of whet your appetite for next week. Anyway, we got to move on because we have to get to our point. Here that we made about God restraining us. Verses three through five in our text says, the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated, and the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. And in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops. ...of the mountains seen. The time is carefully recorded and remembered. The time is carefully recorded and remembered by Moses. It was considered significant that the ark rested on the 17th day of the 7th month. Now the 7th month of the Jewish civil year or the Jewish civil calendar... Uh, later was made the first month of the religious year and what is all of the more significant or what is all the more significant about that is that the passover was set as the 14th day of that month it was set as the 14th day of the 7th month of the civil calendar but that had now become the first month of the religious calendar nonetheless it is the same day and the passover was set as the 14th day of that month Now, think about this. I mean, just consider this for a moment. Consider how wonderful God's Word is. Consider how great it is to know the symbolism that we find from Genesis to Revelation, tying everything that happened in the past with Jesus, who was the creator of all things to begin with. And who is the Word made flesh. Who is the true Logos. Think about this. Jesus was crucified on the 14th day. But then he rose three days later on the 17th day of the seventh month of that civil calendar. Is it any wonder? Think about the symbolism, think about the meaning. Is it any wonder? That in Christ, Jesus, the ark of our salvation, our ark. That in Jesus Christ and in him alone, we will find rest. On the 17th day of the 7th month, the ark came to rest. On the 17th day of the 7th month, we have the hope of resting in Jesus. Because he rose from the dead. He was the one who said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How significant these dates are. Nothing is a coincidence in the scriptures. This reminds us how God weaves his truth from Genesis to Revelation. Come to him. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Listen, could there be any truth more needed today than this? Could there be any truth more needed than this? That Jesus Christ died for our sins, but he rose again. He defeated death. He conquered death so that we could have rest and eternal life. haven't come to that point yet. Let's go on. Verse 6. It came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark and stayed yet another seven days. And again, he sent forth a dove out of the ark and the dove came in to him in the evening and lo, in her mouth was a uh, was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth and he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth a dove which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, was the earth dried. Now, if our math is correct, Noah and his family spent seven months in the ark after the water subsided. That's a long time to be in the ark. After the first two and a half months, they they could see the tops of the mountains. Four days, or 40 days later, Noah sent out the raven and the dove. Only the dove returned. Seven days later, he sent out the dove and it returned with an olive branch. Seven days later, the dove is sent without returning. This would be the 285th day since they first entered the ark. They would wait another additional 29 days and then 57 more days for a total of approximately 371 days on the ark. That's a long time to be on the ark, but what does that teach us? What spiritual truths does that teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us that God's deliverance sometimes comes slowly. How many of you know that? There should be more hands go up. Oh, really? I mean, really? I mean, you guys, God just acts for you. Just You say, God, jump, and he jumps for you? Oh, good morning. Good to have you here. <laughs> Folks, wake up. God's deliverance sometimes comes slowly. What does that do to us, though? What does that do for us? It causes us to wait patiently on him it causes us to trust him you see deliverance doesn't always come when we want it by the way God's timing is always perfect ours isn't God's timing is always perfect secondly there are always times and places of rest after the storm now that's a truth we can say yes that's true I've gone through many storms but every time there's always a place of rest there's always a time of rest. True? See? No? Okay. Yeah. Interactive here, please, you know, please. Why? Because you see we all go through storms. Every one of us. Storms of this life. But God knows where we can rest. There are times and places to rest after those storms. Thirdly, and, and really most importantly, Noah did not steer through the storm. He was just a safe passenger. He didn't steer. I mean, when God designed the ark, he didn't put into the blueprints any kind of steering mechanism inside for Noah to take. Come on, Lord, let me take it, you know. I'll drive this thing no matter what's happening. There was nothing for him to hold on to. There was nothing for him to be in control of. Why? Because God's in control when we're in the storm. Have you come to realize that in your life? That when you try to work things out, God's saying, hey, are you waiting on me? You need a rest in me. I'll bring you through the storm. I'll bring you through. Can you trust him for that? Can you trust him for that? Can you trust him for that? I, I'm wondering, can you trust him for that? Okay, I'm, I'm just wondering. Now, because, you know, you you, you may leave here today and say, that guy's a nut. I may be a nut, but I tell you what, I'm on the right tree. I don't, and I'm not trying to boast here, but I, I want you to know, I trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord. I face trials, I face storms. And I don't like it. I don't. I mean, I don't like storms. They mess things up. For 13 and a half years, we had this little white building up here in front. Every time there was a storm, there was water inside the building every time. 2004, we built this building by the grace of God. We rejoiced in it. But every, even then, with a new building, a storm comes. And I've got buckets in my office. I don't like storms. But I thank God for the book as that God sends. Please understand, we can trust God, can't we? Okay, I guess we can. The Holy Spirit of God is described as restraining the flood in verse 1 and in verse 2 of our text. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read that he restrains this flood of dissipation that surrounds us now. To a certain extent. We like for him to take it away. But he does restrain it. Look at Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. Now this passage here, Paul is talking about the, uh, the, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, as it were, being revealed at a certain time and all. But he says, and now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. So there is a restrainer. Who is the restrainer? The Holy Spirit. Notice, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let, which means he who restrains is restraining until he be taken out of the way. Now, if, it, if the Holy Spirit is the one who is restraining, understand this. You don't take him away and he's, he's gone completely. What you have to understand about this from the prophetic standpoint is that the restrainer is restraining through the church. The Holy Spirit is in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is in the church and doing the work that is necessary in, in, our, in our time and in our society and throughout all of the ages. Why is the church attacked so much? Because we stand for truth. We stand for uh, the you know, the moral and ethical issues, you know, that God has given us. We stand for we stand for righteousness. We stand for all the things that the Bible teaches us, but we get attacked. Why? Because the world doesn't want those restraints. But the restraints are here. We have brought you up in these restraints. If you've been here for any amount of time, you realize that God's word is there for you to protect you, to get you to focus on things so that you can uh, move toward the things of God and not toward the things of the world. So understand then that, that one day soon in the very near future, the Holy Spirit, by the church being removed, will, will be taken and all the restraint will be eliminated. It's almost there, as I mentioned about TV today. That was just one example. It's almost, it's, it's, it's almost, you know, uh, there is some restraint still. But uh, eventually that restraint will will be gone because now the Antichrist will be revealed. But until then, the Holy Spirit is working through the church, the body of Christ, being the only true restraint against the world's evil. But there's another important illustration in the text of how God the Holy Spirit restrains us during the flood of dissipation that surrounds us. Noah sent out two birds. He sent out a raven and he sent out a dove. Now the raven is a scavenger. Content to feast itself on the rotting flesh in the water surrounding the ark. So the raven went out to and fro. You know, the raven is, you know, he's an unclean, you know, he's going out scavenging. And whatever he finds on the waters, you know, that's what he would eat. That's why he didn't come back to the boat. Or he didn't come back to the ark, I should say. The dove, though, goes out. And the dove will not indulge itself in such a feast. That's not the kind of, of bird it is. In spiritual terms, we would call the raven carnal and the dove Spiritual. In our hearts, there remains a raven, the old spirit, the old sin nature, I should say, with its carnal appetites, uh, seeking to feast on the rottenness of the flood of dissipation. As we go out into the immoral, sensual, uh, selfish flood all around us, the raven seeks to satisfy itself. But the dove, the dove has always been and ever will be the symbol of the Holy Spirit. When we are born again, He takes up residence in our hearts. And as we go out into the flood of this world, in His empowering, we are able to refuse the carnal feast that is offered us. We find no resting place and desire only to return to the safety of our Savior. The dove went out, couldn't find a place because there was just flesh out there. came right back. We come back to the Savior. Every day we go out into the world. Every day we see the immorality of the world. We run back to the safety of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there will be a day, you see, that we will find rest when the flood has totally subsided. When Jesus Christ comes back to take hold of his throne. On that day, the dove doesn't return the dove will be with the ark, who is Christ. And the world is going to be made new again. Today we're surrounded by that flood of dissipation. It is somewhat restrained by God the Holy Spirit, but it is awful. And it is deadly. Within us, there's a raven and a dove. Let's yield to the restraint of the dove. Let's yield to the restraint of the of the Holy Spirit don't be drowned in the flood of dissipation Paul said in Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4 therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. Paul says, how shall we escape this flood if we neglect so great a salvation? My concern is that a lot of people are neglecting that great salvation because they're not seeing what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. It becomes something that they memorized in Sunday school or something that they memorized, you know, coming to church. But it's nothing that's got into their heart. The fact is, when Jesus died on the cross, he died a horrible, horrible way. He was beaten completely till all that was on the cross was just a lump of flesh. They drove five-inch thorns into his head they drilled nails into his wrist to hold him up on the cross before even getting to the cross they beat him they played games with him he died for you and for me does that not make any sense that sometimes we neglect that great salvation to taste the waters of a flood of dissipation. that's only going to hurt us that's only going to d- destroy us if we think it's cool, you know what, it's not and some of us can give you testimony that it isn't many of us can do it, right? right? yeah, okay now we're waking up, aren't we? So in the present flood of dissipation, the the Spirit will restrain us. Thank God the Spirit restrains us. Secondly, in the present flood of dissipation, the Scriptures will reassure us. The Scriptures will reassure us. Verses 15 through 19 of our text says that God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. Now... These verses record the first words God had spoken to Noah in over a year. Now that doesn't mean that Noah didn't pray and that God didn't commune with with Noah on the ark. I'm sure that that happened. But for us, this is the first recorded words of God once Noah was placed onto the ark. So that was over a year. And then he was commanded, go. You know, God, God's very good at commanding us in, in, in very short, short words. When he told Noah and his family to get on the ark, what did he say? He said, come. When the, when the ark finally rests and the door opens, he says, go. <laughs> come. Go. Simple. And take those animals with you. And let them get out there. Repopulate the earth. From these air-breathing species, the world as we know it today was repopulated. The animals awakened from their supernatural hibernation, gradually spread out. They migrated across then-existing land bridges, multiplied over many generations, and mutated in varieties within their kinds according to various environmental conditions. All of the earth's present dry land animals are descendants of those that were on the ark. Now consider this. God commanded Noah and the others, as I said, to come into the ark... And now he commands them to go forth from the ark. The one word, come, assured them of salvation. Come. What did Jesus say? Come to me. All you who labor heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come. So that, that word assured them of salvation. The other word, go, reassured them of their service. Listen, this is a message for the believer in Jesus Christ today. You have come to Christ, now go for Christ. You have come for salvation in Christ. Now go forth in service to Christ and for Christ. So, the one word assured them of salvation. The other word assured them of their service. And in light of the flood of dissipation in which we live, the Lord commands all men everywhere to come and be saved. That's a commandment. The scriptures assure them of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And even though surrounded by that flood, God commands his saints to go. We are to go and make disciples of others. We are to go, as Jesus said in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He says, go, make disciples of others. By the way, you know what we need to do? We need to make disciples of others who are running to be involved in the excess of immorality and sensuality in this flood of dissipation. We need the reassurance of the scriptures for our service. And we have it many times over in his word. We have that reassurance. We have the assurance that, that we're to uh, you know, go forth and then we have the assurance and the reassurance that we don't go in our own power, we go in Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We are furnished and equipped for all good works when we go. But the most important thing to note is what Paul says in Philippians 4, 13 When he says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. So we don't go in our own power. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the strength that is given to us by Jesus Christ. Now, Noah's new life in a flood-ravaged world would not be easy. Wind and rain and storms would cause him much difficulty. Totally different now. Everything's changed. Perhaps even leaving him with doubts. Sometimes we have doubts. But Noah had God's word to reassure him. God loved Noah. And God said, I'll be with you. He had God's word to reassure him. Our lives in this flood ravaged world have not been easy. The storms of this life have caused us much difficulty, sometimes leaving us with doubts. But we have God's word still today to reassure us. You have God's word. You know, I know some people have hundreds of Bibles. I hope they read at least one of them and get to know what God says of himself to you what God says of us, and how he sees us, how he loves us, how he's chosen us, how he's called us to be his servants, to be his instruments. We have his word. We have his presence. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his spirit. You have his spirit. So in the present flood of dissipation, the spirit will restrain us, the scriptures will reassure us, and lastly, steadfast worship will restore us. It will restore us. We read the last three verses of Genesis 8 that say, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite anymore everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, see time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease well before he did anything else noah went to church before he did anything else noah went to church he worshiped the lord there there are many lessons to glean from noah's worship while still on the ark, many of Noah's activities speak to us of worship. We're told that after 40 days, he opened the window. Now, we can't say for certain, but this may have been, that 40-day period may have been a time of fasting for him. We know a few characters in the scriptures of Jesus as well, who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So he may have fasted during that time. We're also told that he sent out the dove twice after seven days, the reference to seven indicating that Noah may have been keeping the Sabbath. So he sends out the dove twice after two seven-day periods. But the Sabbath was a regular time of organized worship with family. And that may have happened in the ark. And of course, notice that his first priority upon disembarking the ark was a spiritual act. Not just a physical act of coming off the ark, a spiritual act of coming out of the ark and building an altar unto God. Now the, the scriptures tell us and it teaches us that worship does cost us something. Worship does cost us. Worship cost Noah something. In effect, he offered one-seventh of his flocks, trusting God to, bo- to bless the remainder of his wealth and possessions. His worship was received as a pleasing aroma in heaven. And its sincerity affected the whole human race. The sincerity of Noah's offerings, of Noah's worship, has affected the whole human race. There's no human race without Noah and his sons and their wives. And let's let's remember that worship is not a means to the end of personal blessings as some people may teach. Worship is not a means to an end for personal blessing. It is what is required of us to give unto the God who created us. We are all to worship the Lord. There are undoubtedly other things that we could learn about worship from Noah's example. But for our purposes, I'd like to point out that God, in response to Noah's worship, revealed to him a continuing cycle of restoration upon the earth. God mentions to Noah, seed, time, and harvest From winter to summer, from day to night, cold to heat. You know, as the seed dies, there is hope in the restoration of life. As the seed dies, there is hope in the restoration of life. You plant a seed, you water it, out comes something, whatever it is that you've grown. As the winter decays, there's a restoration to life. Winter turns into spring, spring into summer. We begin to see things happen around us. Life around us. Winter, summer. We experience a lot of both. Have this year, haven't we? January was... One of the coldest winters that we had. You know our, our palm trees outside, you know, they, they all died. I love those palm trees. I wanted them to go tall and beautiful. And all of a sudden after that 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 winter frost and freeze, our palm trees died. They look like large tiki lamps now. At least our other plants and and all stayed alive. That's good. Gives us hope of the restoration in life and to life. And as the night darkens, there's hope for the restoration of light. We can always be sure the sun is going to rise. And so as we worship Jesus Christ in the midst of this flood of dissipation, God can remind us, of the continuing work of restoration in our own life. We will know seed times and harvests. We will live through winters and summers and everything in between. We will experience dark nights, but they will be followed by wonderful bright days. All of this is to prepare us for the day when we are totally restored, resurrected to be with Jesus. The dove went out and it didn't have to return. There will be a day of restoration for all of us who love Jesus Christ. And lastly, and I want to close with this today, going back to verse 1. God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now that doesn't mean that he forgot him for a while. We, We can't think in the way that we do things, you know. We can't apply all of those same issues with you know to God. When God remembers it isn't because he forgot. We can apply it to us because we forget a lot of things. And I find I have found out that the older I get, I forget more things. So I'm forgetting what I'm going to say. No, I'm just kidding. God remembered Noah. It means that Noah, in the flood, came to a new awareness of God's presence in his life. He became more aware of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and of the preciousness of God's Word and God's Scriptures. And for Noah's part, he came to a greater passion In his worship. I pray for that for each and every one of you. That in all of the things that you come to know about his presence. And about his power. And about his word. That you will have a greater passion in your heart to worship him. God remembers you. God remembers us. And he loves us. As somebody once said, He loves us. Why? I don't know, but He loves us. And He loves us with an everlasting love. That doesn't mean that He's forgotten us for any amount of time. It means that we in this flood of dissipation can become more aware of God's presence in our lives. We become more aware of the power of his Holy Spirit. We can become more aware of the preciousness of his word. And our passion and our worship will be greater. And I tell you this, that if we will worship God in passion, it will keep us from the flood of dissipation that seeks to bring us in to its undertone. And I can tell you, an undertow takes you down. It doesn't lift you up. The psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies thy mouth with good things. So that thy youth is renewed. Like the eagles. He redeems thy life from destruction. Some of us in this room may be heading toward destruction. But if you bless the Lord if you call upon his name he's going to keep you from that destruction but you've got to be serious with Jesus because him going to the cross was a serious matter Jesus going to the cross was a serious thing so we cannot treat life as if it's not serious The world should have nothing that tastes sweet to us. The world should have nothing that tastes appealing to us. All it can do is fake us out into thinking that it has something that we need. Everything that we need is found only in Jesus Christ. So do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. Do not be drawn in to the flood of dissipation. God remembered Noah in his flood. He remembers.